Yeah. Yeah. Hey, so we're, um, we're continuing to uh, roll through this series, God the Bounty Hunter, where we've been really trying to get in the, in the mind and in the heart of this guy named Paul, once named Saul, who wrote most of the New Testament. And we've learned so far that Paul, ironically enough, was once a, a murdering bounty hunter of Christians and then became a follower of Jesus himself, which is an amazing story. And I bet that at different points in Paul's life, when he stepped back to kind of take inventory of his life, I bet he had some words like, man, this is a strange life go echoing through his brain. And some of us have deeply resonated with his story and deeply resonated with that story. Last week, we learned um, really that the ultimate message that Paul wanted to get across, this thing that was Paul's heartbeat, if, there, if you would pin Paul down and go, what's the one thing you want to make sure people understand? I think he would say one word. I think he would say grace. And grace, to kind of keep our courtroom scenario going that we've been in this series, uh, grace is like mercy except a lot better. In other words, mercy is being not punished for something you deserve to be punished for. It's like being acquitted for a crime that you actually committed. Grace is a step further. It's not only not being punished for what you did, it's actually being rewarded instead of being punished, which is an amazing picture of what God has done for us. And remember last week, uh, Jim painted that picture. It doesn't get any better than this, that he who knew no sin became sin so that you and I might become the righteousness of God. And that person was Jesus. And we learned about this great exchange, as Martin Luther called it. And Jim did that little illustration with um, one person with, with the stained clothing on. Um, we're, all, we're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And we get to trade our sin, our guilt, our shame for Jesus's righteousness. He put that on us and we put that on him and he took the payment in our place. It's an amazing thing called grace. I once heard someone say that grace is much like water. It flows to the lowest point. And that's true. So that's a really sweet deal. We get all of that and Jesus takes all that away. And what I want to look at this week is how should we respond to something so incredible like this thing called grace? And because Paul was really a smart guy and he knows how people operate and he kind of knows how his own brain and his own heart operates... Paul wants to address how should we respond to this thing called grace because he knows it would be possible to hear a message like that that we heard last weekend and for some of us to walk out and go, hold on, wait a second. So what you're saying is, is that my whole like salvation thing isn't dependent on me doing a bunch of good stuff or trying not to do a bunch of bad stuff. It's not dependent on anything I do at all, actually. It's totally dependent on what Jesus did for me and all I have to do is accept this free thing called grace. That's all I have to do. Well, then why don't I just use Jesus kind of as my like, I don't know, get out of hell free card and keep doing whatever I want. Right. And Paul knows that that's how human brains brains work. And so Paul writes this letter to a bunch of Christians in a place called Rome and specifically in the in the sixth chapter of Romans. He wants to kind of address how we should respond to this thing called grace. So take a look at this on the screens or in your Bibles or in the programs or on your phone, whatever you want to want to do. All right. Take a look at this. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? So there's the argument. Paul's going, so if that was such a sweet deal, why don't we just kind of sin all the more so God can keep showing off how graceful he is with people like us and keep forgiving us? Well, look at at verse 2. By no means, by no means, we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? By no means. In other words, it literally translates, may it never be. In other words, uh, to, to do that would be totally incompatible with experiencing true grace. 
To want to abuse grace is incompatible with experiencing true grace. So Paul says instead, as followers of Jesus, we actually do this thing called dying to sin instead of pursuing sin. And what's that mean? That sounds kind of religious, doesn't it? Well, there's four senses in which followers of Jesus die to sin. All right. The first kind of keeping our courtroom scenario going is a judicial sense. In other words, when Jesus died on the cross on our behalf, on behalf of all those who would believe we've been declared righteous. God looks at us and goes, he sees Jesus, like Jim said last week. And we're declared good based on what Jesus did for us. And that moment was final and irreversible. So we've died to sin in that sense. The second sense is the thing we're going to celebrate the most today. Uh, It's called baptism. We die to sin in, in that sense because we publicly identify with what Jesus did for us. You see, baptism, we're going to see this later when we throw this big party here in a little bit. You're going to see people go all the way under the water and come all the way back up. And we do that for two specific reasons. Number one, that's the way they did it in the Bible. Number two, because that is a beautiful picture of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. We're identifying with all three of those things. Old life, burying it. Dead life, new life, raised to life. It's a beautiful picture. Now, look, look at this. This is how Paul paints that picture in verse 3. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a... Give me that phrase. New life. That's what baptism is all about. New life. So the judicial sense, the baptismal sense, and also, though, the daily sense, we die to sin. In other words, every day, a person who's following after Jesus, like you and me, we have to work really, really hard to follow Jesus. And we're not pursuing loopholes in God's grace, but we're trying to honor God's grace. Look at this in verse verse 5. If we've been united with him like this in his death... We will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master because you are not under law, but under grace. So, so here's what that means. All right, let me, let me try to paint the picture for you. We'll take God out of the equation just for a second. All right, let's pretend that I run up just some unbelievably foolish and massive debts. All right, to the degree that my whole life, my whole world is coming crumbling down. Our, our house is going to get foreclosed on me and my wife and three kids are going to end, uh, end up out on the streets. And you, because you love me so much, all right, at great cost to yourself, pay my debt. And I get to move back into my house and we're, my whole family is kind of saved from the brink of disaster. How then should I respond to that? How should I respond to such an amazing gift? And you're not asking for payback. There's no interest involved. It's just a free gift. No strings attached. How should I respond? What if I took all that money that you gave me and I immediately drove up the mountain to Blackhawk and put it down on the poker table? 
What if I immediately started to squander it in all the same ways that I squandered my original money? What would you call that? You would call that disgrace, wouldn't you? That's what it looks like to dishonor the giver when you trample on the gift. What would be the right response to a free gift like that, an amazing gift like that with no strings attached? The right response would be to make better decisions, right? To like humbly live as a person who was so undeservingly given an amazing gift and not to squander what's been given to me anymore, but to honor the giver when I treasure the gift. But I don't just do that today. And I don't just die to sin today. It's also a future thing as well. So it's, it's judicial, it's baptismal. It's also daily, but it's also future. In other words, one day, and this is a beautiful thing, one day our battle with sin will be over. And that'll be a good day. There'll be a day when Jesus will set everything that's wrong with this world right again. And our battle with old addictions and temptations and habits and all of that will finally be over. And that will be a beautiful day. But here's the truth of the matter. We're not there yet, are we? We're not there yet. Which means that you and I, we live right in the middle of that daily battle. Meaning that even if you've had that conversation with God that Jim talked about last week, you have faith that what Jesus did on the cross counts for you. And maybe you're even here today and you're going to get baptized to demonstrate that you are all in with this brand new life. We still, all of us followers of Jesus, have two things working inside of us. One of which is what Paul refers to as his old self. His old self, which represents old habits and old wants and old desires and old sins and old temptations, which he does battle with our new desires to obey God and to follow him and to honor this giver of this thing called grace. And it's in the middle of that, of that battle that followers of Jesus, we have this tendency to go a bunch of different directions. Some of us, we fall into this kind of deadly trap of just resignation, defeated resignation. In other words, because we're still wrestling with that old stuff, we just kind of give up. We allow our old self to continue to kind of have power over us and to define us. And we start saying things either in our brain or in our heart or out loud like, "Ah, you know what, I'm just a sinner. It's all I'll ever be. I keep screwing up. I keep failing. I keep falling. So I guess I'll just give up. I guess I'll quit trying. Maybe you've been there before. Maybe you've journeyed with someone through some of those dark moments. And they really, really are dark moments. It's a hard place to be with someone. I've been there with some family members of mine who, uh, in the middle of just um, cashing in months of sobriety, all in one night of drinking, said things to me like, I've always been a screw-up, I'm still a screw-up, and that's all I'll ever be. It's a feeling of utter defeat and shame, and it's hard to be there with someone in that place, and it's hard to help someone out of that place, and it's even harder to be in that place. And I think to one degree or another, we've all been in that place before. And maybe you came in here tonight in that place. You're going, I haven't been in that place. I'm in that place. And you barely drug yourself in here tonight. And you had been sober for a while, but not now again. You had stopped feeding your pornography addiction, but not now again. It had been a long time since you had stolen something or cut yourself or lied to your spouse. But in that moment, you fell. And the pain of the fall can be crippling at times. And your sense of utter shame and defeat can make it absolutely difficult to keep going. And I think that if there's any Christian out there who tells you they've never been there, they're lying. We've all been there at one point or another. In the, in the last couple of weeks, kind of interestingly enough, I've had 
I get a lot of emails, but I, I've had two people email me uh, pretending to be people who attend Flatirons, trying to kind of bait me into conversations, which actually has happened many times, but this is the first time it's happened in the same week. And both posed as people who had real kind of authentic questions, but after several exchanges, they finally admitted they were people from other churches that were just trying to test me. And they had friends and family who were attending here and they weren't comfortable with that or they really hated that. And at the end of the day, these these two people, they were just, they were religious folks who had an agenda. And both of their agendas were kind of similar. And I think they point to some of what Paul's talking about tonight. So the first person believed this. And maybe you walked in here with this belief. And I really want to point this out tonight. This person believed that after you become a Christian, uh, if you sin again, if, not when apparently, all right, um, (laughs) If you sin again, then you're no longer like saved. Like Jesus takes that whole gift of salvation thing away until you say you're sorry again. All right, so I want to paint a picture of this for you. So my friend Jordan's going to come out. Come on out, Jordan. So if you remember last week, if you were here, how many of you were here last week? Just raise your hands. All right. All right, so great. Do you remember we did this thing? Come on over here, Jordan. We did this thing where uh, one person represented Jesus, one person represented kind of us. And so Jesus traded all of his goodness, righteousness for our sin and shame. And so we ended up looking like this lovely specimen right here, Jordan. All right. Very good. Now, what this person is trying to communicate to me is that, okay, so Jordan has become a Christian. He's been a Christian for 10 minutes or something like that. And then he tells a lie. I know Jordan pretty well. All right. He's got some sin in his life, all right? Um, So if he sins, Jesus, kind of like a petty little kid, immediately goes, all right, there you go. I'm taking the gift away. And you're back to your sin. And you're back to your shame until you say you're sorry. Then you got to like go to confession and you got to kind of do all that stuff. And then Jesus goes, all right, well, you said all the right words and did all the right things. So I guess you can have it back. And then Jordan has like a a bad evil thought or something like that. Or he raises his voice to me or something like that, you know, and then Jesus, oh, well, Jesus goes, nope, sorry, taking it away again until you say you're sorry. And then he gives it back. And you see how petty the exchange looks. Thanks, Jordan. Now, let me let me ask you a question. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with that idea? Let me answer it for you. Everything. Everything. Jesus is not a petty little kid whose gift is is something that he just revokes every time we do something wrong. That's not the way salvation works. Let me ask you a question. Was the basis of our salvation, think back to last week, was it anything that you and I do, good or bad? No. What's this whole salvation thing totally based on? Let me read you a verse, maybe to kind of jog our memories. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the what? Gift of God, not by, give me that word, works so that no one can boast. No, it wasn't our works that earned our salvation, and it's not by our works that we could ever lose our salvation, and it's not by our works that we try to keep our salvation. It's grace, grace, and grace. It's always grace. You've got to hear me. It's so important. And the second person who emailed me, they, they basically hate this concept of me too. In other words, you, you've got your stuff in your life and I've got my stuff in my life, me too, right? It's kind of this arrogant stance that lives under the illusion that after we become followers of Jesus, we don't really mess up anymore. Or at least if we do, we don't mess up as bad as those people, you know, people like that. It's kind of like saying I needed grace once, but not anymore, Right? For the sake of illustration, it's kind of something like this. It's like if someone was blind 
and miraculously healed by no effort of their own, spending the rest of their life beating the tar out of every blind person they meet. You, you get in the picture? See, Jesus told a story like that once, actually. The story he told went like this. There was this guy who had accumulated this massive debt to his master. And it was a huge debt. His master called him in to collect payment on the debt. And he fell at his feet and said, please, 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 I'll I'll work really hard to pay you back. And it's a ridiculous claim because the debt was way too big to ever pay back in any lifetime. And yet the master looked at him and said, your debt's been canceled. Go and be free. And yet that same person that had their debt canceled walked right out of that meeting and found the first person he could find that owed him money and choked the life out of him and demanded that he pay him up. And when the guy pleaded with him the same thing, he had just pleaded a few moments before, please give me a chance to pay you back. He wouldn't let him. He threw him in prison. In the world full of Christians like that, who've lost touch with grace and live under the illusion that now that Jesus has lifted them out of a ditch that they were once in, they don't need him anymore to stand on their own two feet and they can take it from here. And on top of that, to make matters worse, they stand outside of every ditch everybody else falls in and throw stones at them while they're down there. Now, what's wrong with that? Let me answer that one too. Everything. Everything. You see, Paul himself lived every day in the middle of the same battle that every honest Christian will admit that they find themselves in. In fact, Paul tells us in the next chapter of Romans, chapter 7, pick it up in verse 15, that he had this thing that he struggled with all the time. And I want you to, I want you to hear this the way I think that Paul wrote it or thought it. All right, So I want you to feel the way that I think Paul is about on the verge of a nervous breakdown when he wrote this. Listen to this. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree. The law is good. As it is, sin is no longer... As it is, it is no longer I, myself, who do it. But it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I I don't want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is the sin who lives in me that does it. What? What, Paul? You okay, buddy? (laughs) You know? Seriously, though, you ever been there? I have. You ever been there? You ever been in that place where you felt so weak, the thing I want to do, I just, I can't do, and the thing I don't want to do, I just keep doing? You You ever been there? Yeah. See, Paul's admitting his weakness here. In fact, did you know that it was one of his most favorite topics was his weakness? Over three dozen times in the New Testament, Paul talks about his weakness. See, Paul knew something really, really important. I I was reading a a book the other day. One of my favorite authors is this guy named Philip Yancey. He actually doesn't live far from here. In his most recent book, he wrote a book, a chapter on how much he had learned from addicts and alcoholics in his life. And he was reflecting on a friend of his who was an alcoholic who told him this once. I want you to hear this. His friend said, I prayed every day that God would take away my thirst for drink. And every day I woke up and my first thought was Jack Daniels. Then one day I realized my craving for drink was the very reason I pray every day. My weakness drives me to God. My weakness drives me to God. If that sounds familiar, it's because Paul basically said the same thing a couple thousand years ago. 
Paul had something he was constantly battling in his life. And I'm so glad we have no idea what it was. People like to speculate on what they think it was. We really have no idea what it was. But we know that he begged God to take it away. And it was so painful to him that he referred to it metaphorically as his thorn in the flesh. Something nagging that just wouldn't be taken away. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, this is the description of what happened. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But Jesus said to me, my, what's the word? Grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insult and hardship and persecution and difficulty. Here it is. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So for a follower of Jesus to pretend that they don't have any weaknesses is not only crazy, it's dangerous. Because if we don't believe we have any weaknesses, then we don't believe we need God anymore. But if we're weak, then guess what? We need Him every day. Don't we? But here's the thing we have to know. We're not identified by our weakness and by our sin anymore. Look back at verse 20 of chapter 7. He said this, Now if I do what I do not want to do, It is no longer I who do it, but it is the sin living in me that does it. Did you catch that? It's no longer I who do it. It's the sin living in me who does it. In other words, and you need to hear me on this. Look right here, all right? Your sin does not define you anymore. If you're following after Jesus, your sin has no power and no right to define you anymore. Which is why Paul keeps on going. Look at this. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. Have you ever noticed that? Yeah. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of sin and death? As a pastor, I have people come to me pretty often and And they're actually questioning their salvation because they keep messing up, sinning, making bad decisions. And I always go, me too, welcome to the club. But I also point them to this passage. Because I want you to notice in the middle of this struggle, Paul says this. He says, in my inner being, I delight in God's law. In other words, at his deepest level, despite all of his surface level desires and temptations that point in another direction, at his deepest level, he desires to obey God. So I always ask people who ask me that question the same thing. Is your deepest desire to obey God? Push aside all the surface level wants, desires, struggles, and temptations at your deepest level at the end of the day. Do you want to honor the one who gave you this gift called grace? And if the answer is yes, then you're alongside the rest of us fellow strugglers like Paul trying to follow Jesus. We're no longer identified by our sin, but we're still certainly struggling with this thing called sin. We're still struggling with this thing called old self or old body of sin. That old person that Paul referred to as a wretched man. A wretched man literally means a suffering, afflicted, miserable person. In other words, this battle can get so difficult that it can take its toll and make it feel like it's way too much to handle sometimes. Isn't that some of our stories? This battle of staying clean and sober, this battle of staying faithful, this battle of trying to be honest, this battle of trying to be patient, this battle of trying to be self-controlled, this battle of filling the blank with your battle. It can become overwhelming. And on our own, it is too much. But our weakness serves a great purpose. 
Because it drives us to God, who is powerful enough, right? And is more than enough. Which is why Paul directs his attention after reflecting on his weakness back to this question. Who will rescue me from this body of death? That last word rescue means literally who will draw, who will snatch me from the brink of defeat and danger. Look at the next verse in Romans 7 verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's all say that out loud on the count of three. One, two, three. Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, Jesus is the answer to the question. The question was who will rescue us? And Paul says Jesus. He rescued us on the cross. He rescues us each day. And he'll rescue us tomorrow and in the future. So I want you to think back to last week. How then should we respond to the one who at great cost to himself delivers us, rescues us, saves us? Not just yesterday, today, but tomorrow. How should we respond to him? Should we go on sinning so that grace may increase? No way. By no means. Should we arrogantly pretend that we have it all figured out and we're never going to screw up again? No way. Where should we end up? How about the same place Paul ended up? In a place of gratitude. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's an attitude, it's a, it's a prayer that goes something like this. God, I'm really grateful for what you've done for me and what you're doing for me and what you're going to do for me. I want to honor you, Father, in all that I do. And I'm not going to pretend that I'm perfect now because I'm certainly not. I was totally dependent on you to save me and I'm still totally dependent on you today and I'll still be totally dependent on you tomorrow. So I'll pray the same prayer tomorrow. But thank you, God, for delivering me. Thank you, God, for walking with me through each day. Thank you, God, for grace. As we've been in this series studying this guy named Paul, I've been studying Paul. I've also been studying another guy who lived a couple hundred years ago in England. He he was raised by his mom for the first six years of his life. She was a Christian, but then she, she died and... He really was kind of left to himself because his dad was a sailor and was gone all the time. And he was really, really rebellious all growing up. And he was a self-defined atheist at a very young age. Eventually, he was drafted into the British Army. And he got in all kinds of trouble. uh, Not the Army, the Navy, the British Navy. And he got in all kinds of trouble for all of his rebellion. He even once uh, wrote a derogatory song about his ship's captain and taught it to all the guys on the ship. It didn't go well for him, all right? He was once publicly whipped for his behavior. And as a sailor, he lived kind of a stereotypical sailor's life. He had a filthy mouth. He got in fights all the time. He had different women at every port. And he eventually, because of the time frame he lived in, started working on slave ships. And he would ride on these slave ships to Africa. And he would lead hunting parties in places like Sierra Leone and kidnap people from their own families and put them in, in chains on a boat down in the bowels of a ship. And he eventually set up his own slave trading operation. And during that time in his life, his life was a total wreck. He sometimes admittedly in his own journals said that he raped female slaves on the boats. And he started dabbling in witchcraft and things like that. He was just totally numb to his self-destructive life and what it was doing to other people. In fact, um, oftentimes the people, the slaves on his boat, a third of them would die on the journey back to England. And he describes how he and other crew members would sometimes torture and kill some of the slaves just for entertainment. 
Kind of sounds a lot like a guy named Paul, once named Saul, who was a bounty hunter and stood and held coats once while one of Jesus' first followers, a a guy named Stephen, was bludgeoned to death with stones. And one day this guy was on a ship and he picked up a book by a guy named Thomas Kempis all about Jesus and it really bothered him, deeply bothered him. So much so it caused him to doubt his own doubts. And that night he was awakened by one of the crew members that said the ship is sinking and he woke up and ran up onto the deck and worked feverishly through the rest of the night to try to save the ship and keep it floating. And in the middle of the storm, something really strange happened. He found himself praying. Asking God for help, begging God for help. You ever been in that place? Praying to a God that you once swore didn't exist. Remember what Jim talked about last week? One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and better on the bow of a sinking ship now than in front of God later, right? And that began one amazing journey. And this guy didn't know what to do with all this, and so he just kept doing the only thing he knew to do, which was to work on slave ships. But all the while, God was pursuing him. Does that sound familiar? And eventually, because of health reasons, he couldn't work on ships anymore. And then he took that time to start studying the Bible, and he quickly learned that he couldn't reconcile the way he had spent most of his professional life enabling this thing called slavery with his newfound faith. You can't put the two of them together. And then he became a pastor and he worked hard alongside of a guy you may have heard of named William Wilberforce to abolish slavery in England. And as he was a pastor, this is the thing I identify with the most. He was really, really frustrated with a couple things. One was the language in the King James Bible at the time the people in his congregation couldn't understand. He worked with a bunch of working class people who didn't have a lot of education. And not only did the King James Bible have language they couldn't understand, but their songbook, which was called the Book of Common Prayer, had a bunch of flowery words that nobody could understand either. And so when he wrote his sermons, he had one goal. He wanted to talk to real people in real ways about real things that they could understand. And so he started to actually write songs to go along with his sermons in the same way. And in preparation... For a sermon on January 1st, 1773, he was reflecting on three important things. That's what pastors do. We just kind of reflect on stuff and then it ends up up here, right? He was reflecting on a verse out of the Old Testament in Chronicles 17:16, where this notorious sinner named David said this, Who am I, Lord and God, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? He's reflecting on that. And then he was reflecting on his best friend who he wrote songs with, this guy named William Cooper, who, who they wrote a bunch of songs together. But William Cooper also suffered with intense bouts of depression, so much so that he had attempted suicide many times over. And he couldn't get his friend out of bed to come to church, but he knew he was going to come on January 1st. He's reflecting on his friend. The third thing he was reflecting on was his own story. His own story of his life of rebellion and his time on slave ships, all of it. And in preparation for that sermon, he wrote a song. And that song would be sung first in front of a whole bunch of misfits. It would be sung first in front of a bunch of struggling people, people with stories, people with sin and guilt and shame. And interestingly enough, that song would be sung on the last day that his friend William Cooper would ever go to church. He a guy who used to put people in chains, sang this song. And if this song resonates with you and your story and your journey, then guess what? It's your song too. And as we sing this song, if it becomes your song, stand and sing it with us.
Stay, stay standing for a second. I, I don't think the irony would have been lost on anybody in that room that the guy who used to put people in slavery was in fact once a slave himself. And the guy who once put people in chains was in fact chained up by his own sin and guilt and shame, but because of amazing grace had been set free. John Newton's last words were, I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. And maybe that's what you believe tonight. And maybe that sounds to you a lot like something we looked at last week that said this. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now, to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And maybe you came here tonight totally prepared to be baptized to say, I'm all in for this thing called Amazing Grace. And maybe you didn't, but either way, I hope you're all in for this thing called Amazing Grace. And if you are and you want to be baptized tonight, while I pray here in a second, you can go to that wall over there and line up, or that wall over there and line up, and you can say here in front of everybody, I'm all in for this amazing gift called grace. Let's pray. Father God, we love you, we thank you, and we praise you for who you are and what you've done, namely this amazing thing called grace. In Jesus' beautiful name, amen.